This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides take you. Give me all you got! Listen. Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's LA crime opus Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Hit Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and joining me today is a uh, like horrendously underrated and brilliant Aussie Sydney film critic and writer. Um, he is also one of the most hilarious and sardonic um, tweeters uh, that I thoroughly enjoy following. His name is Mr. Ian Barr. You would have read his stuff on SBS Movies, 4-3 Film, Little White Lies, and this is only the second time we've ever uh, had to reapproach a minute, but it was for fear that you had watched the incorrect minute. So we are back now. We've had a little bit of a conversation. Yeah. Ian's re-prepared. We've reorientated. We are right yeah, now. And we're, ready, and we're ready to watch minute seventy-five of Righteous Kill. So. <laughs> oh. is, this the, is this the first Righteous Kill joke? <laughs> no. But it's it's right. too rare though, Ian. There's not there the, like yeah, it hasn't been this enough. Is the only, this is the only uh, territory I'm I'm worried about uh, <laughs> repeating. Righteous kill jokes. So. Anyway, go on. It is the 76th minute of Michael Mann's 1995 crime opus Heat, um, and Righteous Kill again. All the promise people thought, oh, this has to be the the third in the trio of great Pacino and De Niro hookups. And it, it was so catastrophic that Martin Scorsese had to get Joe Pesci out of retirement to film another movie to get them both in it. He's like, I'm well, not, I not... Need... yeah, the the new uh, the Irishman, um, which is coming to Netflix, tragically, or I hope it other... bankrupts Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I'm you can expect. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I hope everything bankrupts Netflix. <laughs> it never happens. So. Oh, God. Uh, we can go down many a rabbit hole. But um, uh, Ian and I are going to be chatting about the 76th minute of Michael Mann's 1995 Crime Opus Heat. Um, the... Uh, for everyone, there are numerous versions of Heat out there. So when you guys listen along, the best way to know where you're up to precisely in the minute is just listening along in this minute. If you are lucky enough to have the Warner Brothers Blu-ray before um, 20th Century Fox took over and brought out the 4K Divinitive uh, Director's Edition, um, you'll be following us along um, to the letter of the minute. So you'll be seeing up on your screens right now, um, one hour and 15 minutes um, right now. And the, the lovely and also sort of inquisitive... Uh, sort of suspect face, I guess you would call a Val Kilmer on the left of frame and slightly softened focus um, of Robert De Niro's uh, Neil McCauley haircut, which is just meant to be nondescript. There's no fades. There's no lines in the hair for any, uh, for any easy identification. And that is exactly where we're at. We, we, we've just come out of the uh, platinum heist uh, that is uh, that, uh, Neil McCauley heard something wrong. Captain Hydration, um, we dubbed in the truck, sits down in the Joe Lynch episode. He sits down and he walks along um, and uh, he's just get, getting out of there. Now they're figuring out that the cops are on their tail. We're going to watch that minute. And do you have any more uh, Val Kilmer tidbits as we're looking at his beautiful peak Val Kilmer face right now? Any any final tidbits before we launch into the minute? Uh, no. Oh, actually, no. Just uh, one kind of nerdy thing that I... Uh... Had to while I was doing you know a little bit of research about the actual scene and seeing what it looked like on the script. Um, this actually leads starts off in there's a deleted scene showing that it starts off with um, Tom Sizemore arriving late to the scene, complaining that the car has been bugged, and then it leads into this. But good faith on Michael Mann's part to scrap that bit out and just have just have uh, Pacino saying back to work in the the previous scene and then going to this where the Suspect the suspecting things, and, yeah. and it is a clunky. Um, I watched that scene because Ian and I chatted about it previously. I watched that deleted scene that you're talking mm. about as well, and it's so funny how even just seconds because it's not a long. They don't they mm. don't delete. It's not a long deleted scene by any stretch of the imagination. But it's so funny how some directors use the phrase "air." Like there's some air in the film. I think Chris McQuarrie recently talking about Mission Impossible talked about sometimes in action scenes for whatever reason, um, 
particularly in action films, but and I suppose in heist thrillers and things where you're manipulating tension, it's really important. But it's like mm. that just took the air out of this intensity, like this scene. Yeah, absolutely. It's just, it's just this weird, like, dawdly kind of thing, like, you know, Chirito just, hey, hey, guys, the car's being bugged. What the hell? Like, And, and then... he holds these nondescript yeah. electrical things <laughs> like you I, I took a lot of notice like i looked at it and i was yeah. watching it i've got the uh the definitive edition which has the best special features and i was watching it on like uh, my laptop and i'm like zooming in yeah. like what was he actually like i'm sure they went to the nth degree to make sure oh, yeah, these I'm were sick. actually police bugs but i'm like yeah it's such a it's such a different scene. The intensity of like Jesus Christ, like what the fuck? Like the scene begins with yeah, you know exactly. really you know frustrated um, Macaulay here, just going, "What the hell is it?" The score, and they're trying to figure it all out. But we're going to watch that scene, um, a, a much better edited scene without that oh, scene. Yeah. We're, we're going to watch that scene now, and then we're going to come back and we're going to chat all about it. Know something? Assume they got our phones. Assume they got our houses. Assume they got us right here, right now, as we sit. Everything. Assume it all. Now we're going to buy the bank package from Kelso. I'll front that. That's not a problem. Well, what the hell happens to Van Zandt or 750? Van Zandt. Listen, with the heat we got, you want to play World War II in the streets with Van Zandt? No, I want my 750. And when he gets a pass? I got more motivation to whack Van Zandt than either of you. He is a fucking luxury. Our problem is take the bank or split right now. Do not go home. Do not pack. Nothing. 30 seconds flat from now, we are gone on our separate ways. That's it. Chris. bank is worth the risk. I need it, brother. You should stay and take it down. That's where I come out. I roll with you, Neil. It's so funny that I didn't even notice this. I'm so glad that we are back at it. Because back in the saddle, so to speak, as we've just watched this minute, because like when when Neil first says heat around, like spot the heat around the corner, like yep. he's first telling Chris in his room, this is like where Kilmer gets to say, like, like take it down. So it's like the first time they're referencing LA takedown. Like you hear takedown now. Uh, it's the first time in the dialogue that you hear it in the entire film. And I'm just like, ah. Oh. It's heat and takedown in heat, the same heat and takedown in the same minute, <laughs> and I was like, "Ah, that's a nice little bit of business there. Nice, little, yeah, it's worth the takedown." And here we go, Pitch Val Kilmer and Tom Sizemore looking like yeah, he's out I, of his depth. Yeah, there, there's. Uh, I mean, you were you were mentioning that this is uh, kind of like a the, the, their careers were at this like weird meeting point or something like that. Yeah, uh, they, 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 this is an amazing, so just for the context, an incredible run, even just five years for Robert De Niro. Mm. So he runs out of Goodfellas, he goes, Goodfellas, Cape Fear, um, This Boy's Life, A Bronx Tale, Casino in the same year, mm. and Heat, um, which if you were putting together probably the top 10 Robert De Niro films, almost all of those films and that's not even that all the films that he made in the five-year period leading up to this. That's just all the, like, massive, ridiculous hitters. And then you have uh, Tom Sizemore doing this weird other trajectory where he'd been played a lot of bit roles, but he'd started to gain some traction and some heat here. Um, started in a couple of Oliver Stone movies. Um, is in Natural Born Killers. Uh, uh, sorry, is in um, uh, Natural Born Killers alongside... Um, Val as well. Um, Point Break oh, sorry. as well. Yeah, Point Break. Yeah, that's his other big role where he plays the bedraggled uh, undercover cop who gets really angry at uh, Keanu Reeves. And uh, yeah, so but they, they're both on this trajectory and Kilmer's like, you know, The Doors and uh, he's, he's literally on set um, for Batman Forever and in one of the recent interviews he says that like my favourite part of working on Batman Forever was preparing for heat because he was preparing yeah. for heat on the weekends, <laughs> um, which is really <laughs> funny. Just, uh, a year before Dr. Moreau as well. Oh, before everyone's careers who were in that movie just disappeared for five years. Like everyone who was in that movie, <laughs> they could not get hired at all. Yeah. Um, shot in the, And tell me you know of some person in the Australian film industry who's doing like a, like what happened behind Dr. Moreau. Like, is there some documentary? Oh, well, that's amazing. I was, um, I mean, I know there has been a documentary 
I think there was a few years ago a documentary about the Richard Stanley's experience um, yes. on the set. But um, I don't know. I just remember the first time I was reading about the Dr. Moreau saga, I was just thinking this would be just like this. I don't know. Like I, I'm surprised there hasn't been like a kind of like slow cinema, like you know, <laughs> yeah. Sandra Alonso kind of yeah, like you know, reverie about what happened to like Richard Stanley when he was exiled in exile from that set um, in uh, in Papua New Guinea. I'm yeah. Sure. Yeah. But, um, yeah. I'm, I don't know. I'd like to make that move. <laughs> I hope nobody does instead. And if not, if no one makes that movie, Ian uh, Ian's <laughs> copyrighted it on one heat minute. But uh, yeah. I, I just was struck then because we we were watching it with a time code running. You know, I try and keep it really sharp so that we're on point for you guys who are listening. Um, in like thirty seconds, there's so like I think exposition at speed that doesn't get you lost is like an art mm. form because you it's oh, it's yeah. killing it's sort of killing the momentum of the film because it has to tell you some stuff but you know there's like um I'll just sort of rewind it as I'm talking to you but like I'm like 20 seconds into this scene and all this like even 30 seconds the entire 30 seconds that's the that's all the information you actually need and then it gets mm. that final 30 seconds almost which is all the drama is all the is all the chris you know um you know chris it's there's 25 seconds of almost just val kilmer's face like you have to make a decision now and you see him actually acting and conveying even though he's sort of parting some information and telling you his inner workings about whether they should go ahead with his score or whether they shouldn't there's this sort of great balance of the minute where like all the business is done in 35 seconds like i think if you yeah. stop an action movie and you have to have exposition you have a 35 second timer because in heat they did it and if you can do that in that 35 seconds and get it done and then get to back to the emotion i think that's like that's a real test so yeah 37 seconds you're it's, on it's, yeah there's this really like nice mix of acting styles too because like de niro and kilmer are just almost completely stoic and then you have Sizemore, who's just very twitchy. And I, I mean, I, I think that I actually, I got the minute wrong and I thought that we were going to be talking about the next minute. Um, but the, but the, in the minute that I thought we were going to be talking about was it, Sizemore just does this completely, completely bizarre, like feat of tongue acting. Like I, I, I wrote down, I, I wrote down like a, my notes are just almost uh, like the, the notes that I took down for the minute are just mostly on Tom Sizemore's bizarre, like <laughs> lizardy sort of like lulling tongue, almost like, I don't know. It's like, it, it's, it's sort of Cassavetes ish. The, the, the performance, like I compared it to, I, I, I just instantly thought weirdly enough of Jenna Rollins in this one oh. scene in love scenes. Uh, where she is just deliberating for like almost a full minute, and um, anyway, so that's the only time that I'm going to compare uh, size more to Jenna Rollins. <laughs> yeah. So far, so far, yeah. <laughs> I don't think anyone has ever done that before. But you're right. You know, um, I don't know if you've encountered these people. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. But there's some people that I know. Have you encountered them where you talk to them? And when you're talking to someone, they're kind of mouthing words back to you. I don't know what that oh, yeah. is. I don't know what it is. It's a. Oh, it's well, a... I mean, the other thing is that Sizemore also in that performance, that I mean, that little bit of minute, he does this weird, like, semi impersonation of De Niro. Like, yeah. it's the. He falls forward and does that, like, kind of pout that, like, almost anybody who's impersonating De Niro will do and then collects himself for a minute and then. But anyway, that's the next minute. I won't won't try and spoil. Uh, <laughs> just in case, you, just in case you've never seen the film and you're following along minute by minute, and this is now the seventy odd episodes of this show. Um, but yeah, I I think that's a really weird. It's it's, I think it totally works for the character Michael Torito because he's mm. he's the least certain. He's a soldier. Um, he's he's role modeling even to the point of like expression and certainty. He's trying to live okay. the certainty of Neil McCauley back to him and it doesn't really work. Yeah. But I but I mean I, he's like yeah, go on. Oh, I was just going to say he just remind but it reminds me of that thing and I don't know if there's a, a specific uh like anxiety tick or like like mm. a, a tick that certain people have, but I know there's certain people that you've talked to them before and you're watching them and sometimes they're kind of mouthing the words back at you, your own words back at you. Like, 
I don't know yeah. if it's like a, a it, it, it's them not being able to control their expressions when they're really actively listening to you. So they're almost like listening so hard that they're moving their lips. But yeah, I've just noticed that like slight tick as he's being talked to, you can sort of see sometimes his mouth is moving. And I mean, Charita is a really strange character actually. And I'm cause, and again, back to those deleted scenes, a lot of the, I mean, a bulk of the stuff that was cut out and we learned Michael Mann's actually said that this is the film that he's cut out stuff the least i think yes um, but um yeah um, the most of the stuff that is cut out is chorita related um he's the third character who's actually introduced in the film he's introduced before hannah um and that's in the scene where he's buying uh hockey masks for for the uh robbery and then there's another scene where he's like kind of distant and vague at home um i'm not sure what place that comes in the film i think it's i think scene. it's i watched those two scenes together and mm-hmm. it's the scene has all the business because he has to – so kill, the, the, the great scene is like you see Neil walk into the hospital. He gets the ambulance. It's beautiful. Mm. It's effortless. Chris goes in to buy the demolition, um, de- the demolition equipment from the Arizona um, truck yard and the guy looks at him, that great character actor whose name escapes me as we're talking, but that great character actor looks at him, knows yeah. there's a problem, he gives mm. this one second phenomenal glance. Like, I know you're doing something illegal, but you've yeah. got all the right paperwork. And if I scratch the service, I'd probably find out, but I, I don't care. Like, I'm just getting yeah. a paycheck to work here, so I don't care. And the Tom Sizemore one, again, talk about air. It, like, completely t- dials down the stakes because he's then, he goes, he gets hockey masks. He gets some Halloween masks and he gets hockey masks. Yeah. And then the lady behind the counter is like, oh, it's not hockey season. And then he goes, yeah. the, I think the follow-on scene is him going home and being like, oh, I got asked about hockey season and I couldn't handle it. Like, it just like, I was like, it doesn't make any sense. But yeah. Well, so- it's, it's weird because he's introduced, like he's actually, the script mentions that he's a family man and, 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 and no, he's like a loving father and we don't see any of that in the character. So I'm kind of getting the impression that man realized that he didn't have a hold on Michael Chirito as this you know, more rounded character and just cut him down to a few kind of telling scenes where you can infer where you can, where you can infer it will, I guess, like yeah. he's more of a cipher in yeah. a good way. Yeah. In a good, I think that's like, that's such a right creative decision, right? Like if you just haven't got it, you have to just go, mm. well, I've got the scenes that I need from his character. I've got him being the hard ass at the beginning, phenomenal tongue work in yeah. this scene. I, and, and- and that's the thing. It's just like when now that he's in, in in that truncated role, we just have this very vivid picture of him as this adrenaline junkie who is just so fixated on that cowboy aspect that he's cultivated that his family and kids aren't even in the picture. <laughs> yes. And and I mean, and to the point, sorry, like he uses that kid as a shield at the end. I mean, that really just says it all. Yeah. Like how. Like this idea of like a loving father who would use his kid as a shield doesn't really click out. So, you know. And it also makes Elaine, who's his wife, way better, like a, a more holistic yeah. and whole character because even though she is such a rarely glimpsed character in the tapestry that is heat, you're like she's the one that's got a handle on – excuse me. She's the one who's got a handle on what life is. Like she's mm. actually the one who's looking after their children and looking after their family and keeping them here because, you know – Unfortunately, Charlene's got to deal with the action junkie plus the gambling junkie with Chris oh, and, yes. and 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 Elaine, who's Michael's uh, Michael Torito's wife, is you know he's not a gambling junkie. He's just a he just likes murdering people with assault yeah. rifles on the street and then going like, home like it's nothing. Yeah, um, the, I, I mean, just the, the we were talking also about the actual shot, in, the, the actual wide shot in this. Oh yeah, it's a great shot. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the, that's, to, to be honest, I think the exposition, every time I've watched this, the exposition kind of goes over my head a little bit, and I just stare at the stare at the actual shot itself, which has, I mean, I don't want to say, like, I'm, I'm reading too much into this, because Man's one of those directors where if you say you're reading too much into it, he's probably put, you know, ten times as much effort in and, and thought in than whatever... Well, at least whatever I can muster. But I mean, there is this, this like, yeah, I, I, I joked and said it looked like kind of like a space jail with that sort of dome, dome-like electricity uh, hub-like thing. And then, yeah, with those cones sticking out of it. And then there's the transmission tower and the fences. 
and the cables all kind of overlaid, making this almost, I don't know, like almost sort of abstract kind of construction. And it just has this sort of like prison feel. And it's almost like they're kind of like standing out, out of prison or they couldn't just be like, you know, milling, in a, milling about a prison yard. Um, anyway, that was just my sort of uh, I think, I think getting lost. I think you're spot on. I think uh, the, you know, famously uh, Michael Bay absolutely butchered the concept of the movie The Conversation from Francis Ford Coppola, like the famous, you know, chicken wire to sort of cover up and keep oh, yeah. whatever you're doing, um, uh, you know, uh, under wraps. And the fact that all these electrical transformers and this chicken wire, it all sort of, I don't know, like there's an aesthetic here that says this is such in the this is so far away in the boondocks that no one's going to be able to hear or even if you were close you wouldn't be able to you know there'd be interference so it feels like hmm. there's interference there's lots of stuff this huge like literally gigantic electrical transformer in the left of frame and they're all here and they're very you know it's a, it's a it's just another one of these scenes that for a movie that people retrospectively have given the oh this is quintessential LA this is LA it's like this is the this is the most and least LA shot movie ever because it like it, it does everything. Michael Mann was so intent with a hundred and seven shooting locations for this massive mm. movie. He was so intent on shooting everywhere that no one else had ever shot before. He didn't want anything familiar. He you know he he said LA is a bit of a transient existence. You can sort of come here, you live in your little commune if you work in Hollywood or whatever, and then you get out. And it's much more transient than other places that feel more lived in. Like you you know go through every suburb and you travel to every part of the town. And so here he was like, I just want to go to. I don't want to be in my little zone that I have cultivated in LA. I want to see what the sprawl has to offer, like the best the best possible locations. And this is yeah, just like that. That's- and that's always been his thing. He's just always been, I, I think, uh, I don't know. I think the, the one, the one term I used like accidentally earlier before we were starting was searching as a, as, as a, you know, as a verb, uh, to, to describe like his, the kind of experimental period that he would sort of pursue with Miami vice. Um, and yeah. well, I mean, starting with lateral, but I mean, that all started cause he was trying to, cause he, you know, he found, uh, uh, celluloid was in, inadequate to capture night and so he would pursue that and i don't know like i've always uh, i've uh, I, looking back on i mean watching re-watching heat for the the podcast made me realize that he doesn't actually show a lot of again you're right he doesn't show a lot of the kind of the smog and yes. uh yeah just the smogginess i guess um that 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 and yet i always remember 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 him showing more of that and i don't know sorry i lost my train of thought but go on <laughs> <laughs> no it's a um it's a you know it's really funny there's i don't know i don't know uh if folks this is a bit random but if you have a new apple tv there's a scr- there's these like living screensavers that comes on your tv when you hit pause for a too long a time and one of them is an LA night sky. And it's so funny that like I hit pause on it one day and there's a few folk at my place who'd seen the seen Heat a million times and had been on the show a few times. And it comes up to this LA night shot that almost looks exactly like, like it looks like an updated but identical shot of a pan shot, a slow pan of the city where the helicopter that man went through um, the city with. And it's like almost a shot out of collateral. And so many people are like, oh, have you paused collateral here? Like, what is this? Is this a collateral screensaver? I'm like, no. Or was the next person was like, is that a heat screensaver? I'm, no, no. It's just a random shot of LA. But he's sort of, yeah. there's such a stamp of the style that even if it happens briefly, they've just got this like indelible it's the indelible like, oh, that's that's what it is. That's exactly what it is. That's what it looks like. And it sort of sticks in your head. So yeah, it's it's really strange. And may, and I would and it's it's stranger being a person who's never been to L like I've been to LA but like when I was really young. So I don't have a like a big sense of the geography, but um, you know yeah, I've been there a few times and I, I again I I feel like I you know, I was barely scratching the surface and yeah, but some folks who I know who've been there and know it well really talk about the sprawl. They're like, oh, that, that place is in downtown. Mm. They're like, oh, that place is in downtown. You know, oh, that car parking lot is in downtown. They're like, that place is like two hours south. Like, so. Have you seen, have you seen the, uh, the kind of, it's a doco essay film, um, Los Angeles Plays Itself? Uh, no, I haven't. And- 
Who did, oh, right. who, who, no, who did that? Who did that? Uh, Tom Anderson, um, who's an experimental filmmaker, um, yeah, essayist. Uh, he, yeah, so it's just a three-hour I think I have seen about... snippets of it. I think I've seen snippets of it. I don't yeah, know if I've seen the whole film. Because it was, it, was, it was on YouTube in its entirety for a while. But, yeah, it's a good long take on the representation and misrepresentation of Los Angeles. Good, worth, worth a look. Now, speaking of... Um like perfect representation on the right of frame 27 seconds pause as we're watching this now is the delightful Danny Treyer who also um who is just who who does his best work in this scene as a guy who literally is just out of jail who has barely acted before he's I think this is maybe his first or second movie if you count Robert Rodriguez's Desperado where he plays you know the guy with the you know the knife throwing guy with the lady tattoo on his chest and he's obviously got the lady tattoo on his chest to this day it's his tattoo um wait sorry I hate to interrupt did had Tom Sizemore done time at this stage in no, filming? No, he ah. hadn't. But, okay, good tidbit story, folks, if you want to go back and listen to the Oscar Hillestrom double episode where we talk in depth about Tom Sizemore. Right now in this scene, three men here in this scene, and not including Val Kilmer, during the filming of Heat, Robert De Niro was Tom Sizemore's sponsor for Narcotics Anonymous, and he was on the gear like nothing, like nobody's business. He left the set with the fake bloodied clothes of Michael Torito from the final scene and then like went away to some hotel and went on a bender with someone and then De Niro had to rescue him. And Tom Sizemore's current sponsor for Narcotics Anonymous is Danny Trejo. Wow. <laughs> so there's some fantastic stories that Oscar Hillstrom went like inside baseball with us on if you want to go back and have a listen. Um, I've listened to those a couple of times just to laugh my ass off again and you'll hear me cackling like a, a lunatic while he tells these great stories. But yeah, um, no, had not done time yet, but yeah. but um, Danny Trejo most definitely had. Yes. So here in this scene, I think he does some good stuff and it, this is a guy also who's served quite well by the deleted scenes because there's a really... Oh, yeah. The, the deleted scene which expands on Treya's story about the betrayal that Neil only, you'll see later in the film, only sort of is hinted at, I think he, he, he at that stage in his career, couldn't handle, he couldn't handle the scene. He couldn't handle that performance. Mm. It was too, I think it was a little bit over his head. Yeah. Um, I mean, just going back to the prison aspect of this shot, I was actually looking for kind of like quotes from a man on on prison, I stumbled across this good James Walcott uh, article where Walcott says, man is the only director for whom prison and incarceration are fundaments of American life. And that leads into this quote from Michael Mann saying that prison's a laboratory, it's all compressed when you compress the human spirit, etc., etc. Um, and then he just goes on to say, human nature is that if we can't express ourselves by going out to a bar and having a good time and telling a few jokes, it'll manifest in something else. It'll become the sharpness of a seam or something ironed into someone's jeans or tattoos. Um, and while that's, I mean, you know, it's a good quote, probably kind of thing that's maybe easier to say when you haven't been to jail. But um, <laughs> yeah. So it, it's, it, it, it is probably the first time that I have thought of man's films. And I haven't seen the Jericho Mile, but it's the first time I've thought about man's films as being you know, his characters and as just existing in that sort of state where even if they aren't in jail, they are consistently aware and they or or that we are consistently aware of how they've been shaped by it and their experiences there yeah man's one of his consistent themes he calls them gladiator academies um in a, uh, in a couple of his films he used that quote for certain prisons where young men get into trouble and they go to prison at a young age when they're at a crossroads and i think that's hmm. one of the sort of great tragedies that he continues to play on is that None of these guys go, none of man's guys go to prison and stay out without yeah. some form of illegal enterprise sort of uh, being cultivated as they get out because they, at, at no point, like he, he's so like, um, I don't know if it's like pragmatic or cynical. It's probably more pragmatic than anything. It's like, yeah. there's no way that he feels like any single guy that goes to prison doesn't learn how to be a better criminal inside. And like he says that in repeat interviews and there's some phenomenal quotes along the way. And I think I love that one too, but it's very, that sounds a little bit more like man as an intellectual, as opposed to man who's very pragmatic, but it's like, 
that's a great team in all of this. Like every one of these guys has been to jail and gotten better. And in fact, become better recruiters for better resources of people who come out of jail. Because if that person was in that prison, then that person's reliable. Like it's like a weird, it's like jail LinkedIn. Like he's like, he's dialed into like, oh yeah, I knew this guy who was in this block and blah, blah, blah. And if he was in that block, then he must be all right. You know, it's this really weird thing. And so I, I think in a lot of other in a lot of other films, there's this like tragic lens where it's like, oh yeah, you know, they went to prison and they came out and they got better or they did this thing. And, and man is just, he has no time for that, that sentiment. And he's like, no, mm. if they go and they got the wrong time in their life and a formidable age in their adolescence, they're done. They're, they're learning mm. how to be a better criminal. They're, not, they're, they're building themselves to go back and back again. It's kind of funny. I think, um, I mean, a lot of like the terms that I see heat in were probably we're probably like I probably saw it this way, like maybe in my first or second viewing, and now heat has just become, just has become this thing that isn't anything to do with a crime film. Um, <laughs> actually, I'll just, I, well, it's funny because I was looking at the when when the Sight and Sound top two hundred and fifty top top one hundred films came out. Um, I clicked like Heat was one of the first films I clicked on to see who had voted for it, and the only direct, there were a couple of two critics I think who voted for it, and then there was one director, uh, Mia Hansen Love, who's yep. a French director who made um, sorry uh, Things to Come and uh, Eden, and uh, Eden's the kind of loose Daft Punk biopic, not biopic but anti biopic that's sort <laughs> yeah. of about Daft. And it actually has a lot, of, a lot in common with heat as far as like work, work-life balance themes and that kind of thing. But um, she just she talked about the film as just purely being about relationships and intimacy, and commitment and all that and all those themes and and listed it alongside like-minded directors, like not like-minded directors, but people like Philippe Garel and Eric Romer and um, Jean Eustache. And I'm gonna um, I'm gonna read because uh, I I had Ian send me this link, but it's, um, so, so Mia Hansen love insight and sound poll. She voted for her, her top 10 films, Arabian nights by Pasolini. Oswald Chuck Kubrick, Fanny and Alexander Bergman, um, frontier de la, um, la frontier de la by Philippe Gorel, as you said, the green Ray, Eric Romer heat, um, la maison de Bois, which is Maurice Pilar. 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 Um, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and then Eustache, and um, so and and I'll just go to her quote because it's just ter- terrific. I I yeah. I, I, obs- I obsess over it. I love man's films, and I've seen this so many times. It seems very classical in the story it tells. The conflict between the need for action, responsibility, love, couples. What touches me about man's films is the way he puts these things back into play, but in his own language, a language that speaks with the poetry of the modern city, contemporary melancholy. And there's something really erotic about this film, the interactions between the couples, the arguments, what plays out between the couples, especially between Ashley Judd and Val Kilmer. I find it highly erotic. This is the second time she said erotic. Um, Highly erotic, but deeply melancholy. And the way those two things speak to each other is singular in that film. There is not one, there's not one shape charge. There's not one bullets flying. It is all eroticism and melancholy. And it's the funny thing is, is that if you told that to somebody when he came out, like they probably (laughs) laughed at you. Yes. They probably laugh at you, and, I don't know. And, but but the, but the thing is, it's like it's completely right, and like and, and that's like that's why heat has just been meant so much to me. It's just it's been completely morphing and changing, and it's just always in flux. Like depending on which part of my life I watch it in. Yes. And like and yeah, just like the, the, to put it in that kind of in those terms, and then just also to see it alongside those films and in that lineage. I don't know, just like to me, that's that's being like cinephilia in, <laughs> yeah. to a T. It's like you want to just see all your favorite films like in different lights and I don't know, and you know, and in different contexts and uh, yeah, anyway. Um, and also, and, and, and a great quote, a great quote. And the, um, there's something to be said about like the reson- like what resonates about contemporary melancholy because she's writing about, She's writing about heat like now, like now-ish um, uh, in the poll. And even from 1995, like there's so many things, you know, you, you and I as now cinephiles read takes, you know, different different essays and views around what things kind of ended, um, ended 
irrevocably in a post 9-11 context you know it's like oh that that, you know and i think for her to be like no it's still so dialed into contemporary melancholy spaces people not interact people not being able to interact with one another um you know those things i think that's what really resonates with me and I agree with you. I, I have totally, dra- I have drastic experience, different experiences between August last year, which is when like some of the first episodes of this show were recorded mm. to now, like, you know, <laughs> between, between 2017 and 2018, I've had drastically different viewing experiences with heat. And maybe it's just because I've become like this weird cipher for every potential way that one can view heat, you know, as, as a, <laughs> As every as as I've come along, so it's this weird thing. I think that's, I think that's why it's like kind of it's kind of easy for me to just like be presented with an out of context minute, and then just like be like, wait, what, where's all this exposition from? Like, who, who's Van Zandt, or like <laughs> something like that? But I, I probably not that extreme, but um, you know, um, but yeah, it's it, it's also kind of funny that she mentions classical as regarding the style, and yes. it's interesting to see how conflicted reviews were about like just regarding the look and feel of it like you, mm. you see lots of people say this is a really stylish film it's like the you know the the bench like the, you know, the ultimate like stylish ultra stylish crime flick and then there's also people who will say that it has like a more verite feel to it it's this realistic like you know precursor to you know i don't know like stuff like paul greengrass or whatever and yes then but but it, yeah, it just it, it it's man at that like crossroads between classicism and his later period. Yeah, and I I think that's the reason. Like I've heard some people like complain that it's sort of stylistically not as interesting as the earlier films like Thief and Manhunter or or like stuff like Miami Vice or Collateral on the other end of the spectrum. But to me, it's the fact that like shots like this that that like prison prison mise-en-scene kind of thing it, it it's it, it's it, it's exerting this like kind of psychic pull over you and drawing you into subjectivity without you being as cognizant of it and maybe that's why i find i find it just equally impressive yeah. to think miami vice there's just on a purely formal level for, formal subtlety too because you you go back to something like manhunter and he does amazing tricks with you know obviously tangerine dream score so the entire film feels very dream you know very dreamlike and sort of hyper subjective um mm. plays tweaks frame rates to firstly enhance focus in soup like in ultra dark but then toys with different film stocks so some bits he shoots on video to make you like feel like you're inside the head of a serial killer because obviously the tooth fairy if anyone's familiar with red dragon or manhunter the film like they know that he's watching family home videos and editing them together to find his targets so there's a couple of shots in the film that are like that stock and it's i think it's the mix of stocks the mix of like traditional filmmaking and then these weird hyper color palette and he's like adjusting frame rates and stuff but like to your point there's so many great filmmakers my favorite when i think about just pure like the subtlety of subjectivity or and conversely like bludgeoning you over the head with it is like abbas kiristami the iranian filmmaker because he does because there are some things he does that are so in in a lot of his early films that are so deftly subtle like just they feel like they're just accidentally happening, but you know that yeah. from reputation. Have you, that... his, have, you, have you seen his final feature, uh, Like have... Someone in Love? No, I haven't. Oh, right. seen. Yeah, it's, it's been kind of weirdly forgotten, but uh, just it just absolutely is a part of what you're saying. It's just this, this uh, it, like the, the entire last 40 minutes of it are just so agonizingly suspenseful. <laughs> um, I, I think I, I think the first time I saw it, I, I was just like, I'm just like, why am I just in such a like feverish, feverish state? Yes. And then it ends with a jump scare of all things, like just <laughs> completely. And then it ends. Like I, I'm probably spoiling it a little too much, but um, I'll yeah, check, I'll, I will watch it. But like, I think some of his best films, like I think of Close Up, like that is a movie that is a nexus of you know crazy hyper hyper reality like it does things like very formally like you know, tr- it's trying to trying to almost like re-authenticate itself because of the story that it's telling and then it does that incredible you know plastic bag blowing in the breeze shot that yeah. american beauty stole and won an oscar for um it does this amazing shot that is just pure verite pure happy accident 
you know, just, it, it, I think there's like a real thing to strike a balance between style and authenticity. And one thing I read, like, can I go back and I read heat reviews in my spare time? So I feel like such a weird thing. that. I, I, I've, I've always been wondering if there's going to be an episode or a, a, you know, a moment where you just think heat sucks and it's like at minute 80 and it's like. <laughs> All right, guys. Welcome to one minute. I'm out. Um, no, it, it, I don't, I don't think that's. Anti- I, podcast for the next year no I don't, I don't think that's possible i don't <laughs> think it's possible um but but i one thing i do read and i think to your point is there's so much of this movie you know as film mm. critics you you can't help but be subjective into the things that lure you in and i feel like sometimes um you know some of the great essays that are on films are just on elements like they sort of capture onto an element they capture onto a scene they grab into they dial into the movie via a channel um you know great reviewers do that so well they pick a theme and they just sort of then speak to the movie refracted through that perspective but it's like if you wanted the paul greengrass movie in heat you've got it you want the action chris nolan influencer you've got it and now what i think is often underappreciated and what like Mia Hansen Love's beautiful quote was talking about is that relationships and melancholy and eroticism and people being good. Like I, one of the first, um, I sort of forgot. It's weird. You forget to like it, that. It's okay to talk about film in these terms, but in an upcoming episode that I'm really stoked for you guys to hear, which is with um, Nick James, who is a BFI um, sight and sound editor, speaking of sight and sound lists, um, he, he wrote... I should have saved that quote for uh, next time. But... <laughs> I don't know. That's good. We dropped it now, so it's in. But we, you know, he, he literally wrote the BFI classic book on heat. And one hmm. of the things he talked about, he just goes, both Pacino and De Niro have never been more handsome than they're in this movie. And, it's true. And it was just like, Oh yeah, and you're like, oh, and Val Kilmer, like that's. Have you, he's, oh, sorry. Have you seen? I've, I, I've got to bring this up. There was recently while I was doing, while I was looking up uh, other uh, materials on Heat, there was a uh, old press conference at the time that was up, uploaded to YouTube in the last month. No, um, I haven't seen it. Yes, well, I'll send it to you, and you can put it in the notes. <laughs> Great. Um, it, it's it, it's from when press conferences were a lot less uh, guarded and maybe <laughs> maybe a little more hostile. And uh, most of the questions were just about the rivalries between De Niro and Pacino. Anyway, they're all looking they're looking super handsome and somewhat hungover and <laughs> just peak peak Pacino De Niro beauty at that in that conference. But it, but it's funny like it's like they they never been more handsome and it's such a huge part of this movie. Like everyone's really handsome. Like every, like everyone's really they they that you know besides poor Ted Levine I'll probably say but like every no one's no one's been more handsome um you know in their lives and everyone looks good and it's you know, without without being like and it's like a real world handsome like they look like a hmm. real handsome person not some crazy you know Hollywood overdone version they just are it's a it's, yeah it's a really speaking it's, of real people I mean we haven't even mentioned in this shot that uh, De Niro is just chilling with this coffee cup this little this little pathetic coffee cup that looks like i don't know it looks like it came from like a broken instant coffee machine nearby yeah anyway it it is the ugliest it is the ugliest instant coffee cup that there is and it's 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 one of those ones that's so it's it's it looks like when house runs the factory for that night in the simpsons and then like (laughs) like presses presses the button the rat comes out and Word of, uh, anyway, you know what? There's, there's not, there's not enough. See, people in America don't even understand how much more people in Australia were obsessed in The Simpsons than them because, like, it was our literal yeah. entire life, and like Simpsons <laughs> circa from like season four through to like season ten got played on like our one of like five channels that we have in this country for like a longest time. Got just played every single night every single night at the same time. And so we, we, it was the, it was a common language. It was like a dialect Millhouse. Yeah. I, it's yeah. I was thinking the other day just about how many friends I lost over, <laughs> over like over either they didn't like the Simpsons or, or they didn't like it in the same way. And <laughs> I think, I think I remember. Yeah. I, I didn't I, like it in the same. That's I so good. That is so. Yeah, I, it's just stuff like I remember. Like I remember, a friend was laughing at the Ted Koppel reference at one point, and I just like said to him, "You don't even know who that is." I didn't even know who it was. And 
just that kind of thing. Uh, but we all la- we all laughed at Barney trying to uh, suffocate Homer with a pillow, and then sm- use a use the drinking fountain to smash out of a window and run into a field. In that episode, well before we'd all heard of One Flew Over Cuckoo's Nest, like absolutely a, a certainty. Uh, uh, that's so good. Yeah. Oh my god! But no, you're you're right. Actually, I think that deleted scene, that deleted scene of Michael coming home with his kids, mm. where he's the family man, is after this because he's wearing the same jacket. I just noticed uh-huh. it just now. So I think, sorry, just to to recap, I, I said it might have been earlier, but I think it's after this scene. And he's meant to look like flummoxed because he comes yeah, home and he's it's, like, "It's the sort of like foreboding bit, basically." Yes. Um, but one thing, and and um, in a previous discussion, Ian and I talked about he was lucky enough to be at the TIFF, uh, uh, the Toronto International Film Festival screening of Heat for its twentieth uh, anniversary. Oh, yes. Yeah. And uh, you, it, it does have quite a good talk from Michael Mann there and people were asking pretty good questions. And, and I remember you saying it was really good. And when he said, and I remember you, you triggered me to this, is uh, he said, they said, what's the best thing you noticed about it? And he said, the eyes. Like on a, on a massive screen, the eyes of the performers and like what they're bringing yeah. to each of their characters. And I just think that one of the scenes that I thought about was this. Like this frame, oh, yeah. uh, this frame of Kilmer, it's like 37 seconds in. He is such a formidable actor at this moment. Like he is just top notch. Um, and he's the intensity that he's delivering and what these guys are doing for one another across from each other in this scene is just like, this is where you go. Like Tom Sizemore is a very good actor. And like in this cipher role, it's probably the best performance he really mm. ever delivered. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, but this is Kilmer and you're like, God damn it. He was good. You know, it, it's yeah. like he, he pops up into these little blips every sort of five years where he's absolutely incredible. And you're like, wow, this guy can act his pants off. And then, you know, wielding, wielding a chainsaw and Terrence Malick's song to song, of course. <laughs> and cutting all his hair off. Did he actually, did I see a flash of him cutting all his hair off in Terrence Malick's song to song? Or was I, I dreaming? I watched, I watched that on a plane, uh, half asleep and. That's the, best way, the best way to watch it from my it probably was actually, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah no I, I can't remember any hair hair did you say hair eating no no oh. no not hair eating just, just like chopping it off i i, I okay. at one moment i was like val kilmer's in this like the first you know song song you go val kilmer's in this and then he's like doing all this I, I, I knew he was in it because i think i followed the production and making of that film for the five or whatever i know it felt like 10 years that it was <laughs> 10 years ago that it was shot but there was like some kilmer uh some kilmer action in the behind the scenes uh some like nine isn't isn't every malik movies like nine hours left on the cutting room floor and it's all in film uh, so they it, just just... It just yeah it just becomes another future malik movie <laughs> at some point. but no so yeah what really struck me is the eyes here just the you know and it's funny with man they're like do you, you know do you they're asking him like, "Do you ever get sick of this movie, or do you do you mm. what do you what do you look forward to?" And he's like, "I just love seeing it on a, I love seeing it on a massive screen because you give these actors the biggest canvas to see the best parts of their performance." Yeah, absolutely. And uh, looking that good fake what what is it with movies that just can't get fake scars or or hair right that True Detective and this movie just get right? Like the people have scars in this movie. It looks legit. And of course, Val yeah. Kilmer doesn't really have a scar there. Like, is there just like tears of people who can actually do this stuff? And then they're just terrible everywhere else. Like what is going on? Yeah. I have no idea. I don't know. I have, I have no idea either. And I'm, I'm like, I'm guessing that might even be a Val Kilmer wig. Like it's a, it's gotta be right. If he's just come off of Batman and he's acting with this, sort of short hair, then this has got to be... A the thing is, I've seen Kilmer more in Heat than I have uh, I've, in, in anywhere else. So I'm more, <laughs> I'm more familiar with his visage and his overall look <laughs> in this than I am anywhere else. So you could not tell me that he's... He, he has fake hair and everything else. And he's, this is real. Um, look. This is real mode. This is his realest hair that he's ever had. Look, I think that's the perfect... Um, that's probably the perfect <laughs> note to leave this... Uh, to leave this amazing conversation on ladies and gentlemen this has been uh, another episode of one heat minute 
Ian Barr, thank you so much for being a part of the show once again, guys. You oh, can absolutely a pleasure. You can find Ian at Ian Barr on Twitter. I've spent the last five minutes kind of just staring at the the uh, the, the, the Kilmer uh, that's just behind you. So this beautiful image of Kilmer, sort of, sort of mumbling, mumbling things about, <laughs> about Kilmer. That's no, that's okay. It's it, he's he has that he has that speechless effect on us all. Um, at Ian Barr is where you can find him on the Twitters um, and obviously all those other sites I mentioned, SPS Movies, 4-3 Film. I'll, I'll, I'll try and write something someday soon. <laughs> he, he does. He does. He does write. He's, he's just pretending. Bit of a that... hiatus, but uh, I'll, I'll get back into it. Well, look, you've done this podcast. You've broken a pod. Is this your podcast, Cherry, being broken? Podcasts are, yeah. Podcasts are more writing than writing <laughs> these days. <laughs> Ian's Twitter is more Twitter than Twitter. Um, really, I'm going to actually, uh, I have to, I, f- I forgot, I forgot to do one thing, which is to go back and find. So in, in, in Ian's preparation um, for coming onto the show, um, he wrote this absolutely brilliant tweet, which currently as it stands has 13 retweets and 153 likes, which says he is a film about a cop. If, if, if it has lots of likes, it means it's fell safe. Uh, <laughs> fell safe wisdom there. It says, Heat is a film about a cop trying to convince a criminal to record a relationship podcast with him in a cafe, um, which is... which is the podcast being recorded in Heat, though. There's what? a good you know, good economics podcast with, with John Voight. There's a good, good tech podcast. There's, there's, with, a te- uh, there's, there's a tech podcast. Just all yeah. this shit is just beamed out there. You just got to know how to there's grab a, it. A doing, pro- a doing Crime <laughs> podcast we've just watched. Exactly right. Um yeah. At Ian Barr on Twitter is the best place you can find him. Thank you to Garth Franklin for our website design. Thank you for Mr. Paul Davies for our awesome theme. And guys, thank you for listening and subscribing. Please rate and review One Heat Minute if you haven't already. Um, it helps with iTunes' batshit um, algorithm. Um, so it would be much appreciated if you dig the show. We'd love to hear from you. Just, um, just throw a review up there. We'd love it. Um, we're on Spotify. We're on iTunes. We're on Wooshka. We're on Google Podcasts. But if you want to find out anything about the show, it's oneheatminute.com. And you can mail us at mail at oneheatminute.com as well if you've got any um, cool stuff. I've got some great emails from a few folks just pointing me into little dark corners of the internet with more Michael Mann articles than I can poke a stick at. So thank you guys um, for that. I super appreciate it. But Ian, thank you so much once again for being a, a guest of One Heat Minute. I know, absolutely a pleasure. Thank you, Blake. And I will pressure him right now on this podcast to come back and do another one a little bit later where maybe we can find another disorientating minute where he can look into <laughs> Val Kilmer's eyes. If I can just convince him with Kilmer, I think I'm in a very good space. Awesome. All right, thanks, guys. I'll see thanks, you. thanks, Ian. Thanks for, thanks for listening, guys, and we'll catch you on another episode of One Eight Minutes. Just around the corner.